0: Find out more by going to www.intelligentsquared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farajasat, And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Ottolenghi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm
2: Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion, and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before as the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs
1: £5 a month.
2: Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed.
1: So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And now to this week's episode. Today, we're joined by Wendy Liu, author of a new book called Abolish Silicon Valley, How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism. Before writing this book, she was an insider herself in Silicon Valley, working for companies like Google and founding her own startup. She was in conversation with Carl Miller, research director at the think tank Demos, about her personal experiences inside the industry and why she believes our current model of capitalism leads technology to be developed in harmful ways.
2: Hello, I'm Carl Miller, the uh, research director of the Santa the Analysis Social Media at the think tank Demos. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Wendy, hello.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: So, Abolish Silicon Valley. Why should we do that?
3: <laughs> yeah, so the, the title is a little bit cheeky. It's less, you know, a call to actually destroy the industry and more just to get people to stop and think about what the industry actually means, and if we can reorient it in a different way so that it better serves the public good. And what I'm trying to do with the book is, so the book is actually mostly memoir. It's not really a polemic. It's not really a manifesto. Most of it is just about my own personal experiences with the industry, my understanding with it, how I started out um, just being a total Silicon Valley believer, and then over the over the years just started becoming a little more uncomfortable, a little more doubtful about what I was seeing around me, and and I think the last few years we've seen a lot more tech criticism coming from both outside the valley and within it. Actually, you know we have uh, we have all these stories about workers within Silicon Valley who are just not being treated the way that we would want them to be treated. We have all these billionaires who are existing amidst staggering poverty. We have all these um, you know big tech companies that are behaving in ways that are anti-consumer. And I think all of these things are connected. I think what we're seeing with Silicon Valley is we're seeing the concentration of wealth and power amidst a very small number of unrepresentative people who do not have, or who are just not prepared to take on the responsibility that that power implies. And I don't think they want to. I think I don't think it's necessarily even fair to saddle with them, saddle them with this responsibility. And so I think we're getting to the point where the industry as it exists, even though it's produced some amazing things, I don't think that the structure works anymore. I think we need new norms, new institutions, new visions for um, directing how technological development could go. Um, and for me, the problem is the fact that a lot of these companies are driven by the desire to expand. They're, they're driven by the profit motive and i think in the current environment where we have staggering inequality where we have a socioeconomic system that is not working for a lot of people i think it's it's almost inevitable that tech companies would get to the point where they disappoint some of the people who previously would have believed in them and i think in a sense we can't necessarily blame the people in charge and so when i talk about abolishing silicon valley you know even though it's mostly a joke The point is to posit a structural solution. I'm not saying that we just need to replace Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk with like, you know, women or people of color, like slightly nicer people. I think diversity and ethics are important things, but I also think we need larger, structural, broader solutions where we need to get to the point where we don't have these billionaires in the first place. You know, we don't have people who um, have so much control just within themselves, I think we need a much more democratic way of developing technology, and that is what I mean by by abolition. Um, it's it's one of those things where you know I I, I say abolish Silicon Valley, and I think half the people who hear it immediately understand what I mean. The other half are just. Uh, and f- they're just furious because they're like, how, how dare you? And I, I recognize it's provocative and controversial, but I think it is useful to t- try to steer the discussion in a certain way.
2: So as you say, you know, the, the book very much follows your, your personal story um, into that world and, and kind of much of the, the start of it is really about you falling in love with, um, with many things to do with technology, isn't it? So um, how did you kind of first realize the kind of enormous power that could be kind of fizzling at your fingertips if you could kind of learn the language that technology speaks
3: yeah so the the book starts out with me being about 12 years old and you know building a website for the first time and even though you know the the websites that I was building then they were just HTML they were very static they were very basic getting a sense of what I could possibly do with these websites was really just uh, really invigorating and it made me think that I could build anything. And, you know, I, as a kid, I was extremely naive. I thought I could build the next IMDB or something just by myself. But I think having access to the ability to write computer code at a time when the world was becoming more and more digitized, that gave me this sense of power, the sense of freedom that I didn't have anywhere else. And I I, I still think that's very powerful. Um, and over the years, as I learned more, more about coding and I Studied computer science at university, um, it and as, as I was paying attention to the world around me, and I noticed that all of these tech companies were suddenly worth billions of dollars, and software engineers were making a lot of money. That made me feel like having the ability to manipulate computers could be extremely valuable, and it was. Um, and I think what we're seeing right now is we're kind of all of us are living with the 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 wake in the wake of that, and the fact that software engineers are given so much power to control the destiny of you know the the future and i think yeah now, now we're living in a kind of like the the downside of that but there for me there definitely was a time when i couldn't see any downside it was more just it's so beautiful to be able to make things that um you know connect people or that automate work or that just uh create cool things on a computer. I, I only saw the positives basically when I was when I was growing up.
2: And it's actually, you know, th- that very thing, you know, creating cool things on a computer as you kind of go from website games to kind of open source projects at university, you know, even before you really go physically to Silicon Valley at all, that seems to open up the kind of one of the first like big ideas that the book kind of reflects on, which is kind of hacker culture. Um, you know, to, to an outsider... I think hacker culture can feel quite scary, can't it? Or or at least confusing, but it's much richer and more interesting, isn't it? Like actually what what hacking means and what being a hacker really means to the people that are them.
3: Yeah, I agree. And I I do love many things about hacker culture. I think there is something beautiful in this idea of being so engrossed in a technical problem that it just takes over you and that, you know, you maybe don't even think about the the norms. Maybe you're doing something that's like not necessarily legal in all sense of the term. But I think there is something beautiful in the idea of wanting to tinker with a machine, wanting to understand it, wanting to have power over it. Um, By the same time, as I talk about in the book, there are, there are some negatives associated with the way this culture usually manifests and you know, for one, there, there's a very strong gendered component to hacker culture. And I think that's something where, you know, if you're like me, just this naive teenager who doesn't really understand anything about gender politics, entering this kind of world, then it's it, it, it can be a little dangerous. Um, because I personally just, I, I saw a lot of misogyny in the world around me. And I didn't know what to do about it. I just figured, oh, well, if this is how this world is, then that just must be fine. That must be normal. There must be something wrong you know with with women that's that's why there's so few women on the internet um, and I didn't really know how to how to reconcile that with you know the fact that I I myself was female but yeah and so I think that led to some pretty uh, reactionary like nasty instincts within myself which I'm still trying to work out but yeah I think there's some, there's something beautiful but there's also you know in a space that's so it's kind of like outside the norm in a space where kind of anything goes I think that can also give rise to some undesirous um, uh, impulses and ways of organizing that kind of culture.
2: What what kind of reactionary instincts do you think it was raising? Is it? Do you think that's a kind of common kind of experience of many women who kind of are partly kind of part of hacker culture, but also kind of, you know, victims or targets of some of the culture of it?
3: Definitely many of the ones I've spoken to have had kind of similar experiences where, I mean, in a sense, it's like if this is just the environment we all have to grow up in, right? Uh, for, for those of us who've, started coding at like a young age or at an age where we didn't really have a good understanding of the social dynamics then it's it's really hard to have a nuanced understanding of what's going on and i think it is pretty common for women to think oh yeah you know these all these guys they're they're pretty dismissive of women they they tell they tell like rape jokes or they they make fun of women all the time but there i'm here and so there must be something different about me and so it must just be that they're talking about other women, not not me, and then I think that that can lead to you know thinking, well, I'm I'm just better than other women. That was definitely something that I had to struggle with um, as I started my computer science degree, and I found, oh yeah, there are actually other women here who have gone through the same thing, and maybe we don't have to we don't have to internalize these ideas. Um, but I I think it is pretty common. I think you know. Especially in the early days, when it was really, really easy to be in that world and not read anything negative about it, I think these days um, it's more commonly understood that this this kind of culture is problematic. And um, I feel like the discourse around it is, is is a little more thoughtful. And so I feel like um, you know, young women who are just coming of age and just getting into programming, they tend to have a better understanding of the problems of this kind of culture. So I I think it's something that like, as it's growing up, as people are growing up with it, it's, it's getting a little better.
2: And when you, and it, was, it was whilst you were uh, at your, um, still studying computer science, wasn't it, that you um, began your internship at Google, a dream for many, obviously. I mean, what, what was that like? You know, was, was that when the mask started to slip for the first time or were you still completely enamored by, you know, all the things that Google represents as an employer and obviously the ultimate access in many ways to kind of data and tech and everything else that a, uh, um, a kind of a hacker wants?
3: Mm. Yeah, that was definitely when the mask started to slip but in in very small and confusing ways. So when I first got the internship, at first I was I was just enthralled. I was amazed that I had even gotten this internship. I wasn't sure that I was qualified because I'd heard so much in in the media and the press about how Google was this amazing place filled with brilliant people and I thought, well, I don't actually know that much yet. But that quickly shifted for me because I think something Google is really good at is Instilling this idea within the minds of people who are at Google or about to join Google that they themselves are really that special, and so you know you feel like you're part of this this club. You feel like you're part of the the chosen few, uh, and that that definitely helped get rid of my doubt. And I thought, well, if Google chose me, then then I actually must be special because otherwise they wouldn't have chosen me. And so I put a lot of faith in the company's selection process. And when I actually got there, at first it was great. I think. I, I loved it for a while. And it was only, I guess, over the course of, you know, the, the three, three, four months that I was there that I started noticing little things, partly to do with the, the company itself. So there were things like the the company was very, was and still is very big on leaking in the sense that if you're an employee and you leak something to the press, then you can get fired. You can, at least you'll be disciplined. It's usually seen as something that you should not be doing—it's you know betraying the family. How how dare you? And there was an employee who was publicly announced to have been fired for having leaked to the press. And you know the the founders uh, Larry and Sergey—they got up on stage one day and were talking about this guy who got fired, and they named him. And I remember thinking, well, the thing that he got he got fired for—I I've read the the you know the article. It doesn't sound that bad. It, it doesn't sound like he was being malicious. It sounds like he just talked to a reporter when maybe he shouldn't have but the fact that you know everyone in the company was just kind of joking about how this guy got fired that definitely made me a little uneasy because i was thinking well you know this doesn't seem that bad why why does everyone seem to accept that it's okay to fire someone simply because they they talked to a reporter that does, does not seem like a healthy environment so that was one thing another thing was just um all these contract workers who they, they had a different colored badge. I think it's a, I think it's a red badge. I'm not sure if that's changed, but they had a different colored badge and they were, they were people who had, they were work, they were working for Google, but not in a full-time role. And the company would, you know, kind of explain the division in emails. It, they would say, you know, we're having this party and contractors can't come or something. And they would explain if you're a contractor, here's what to look out for. Like if you're a full-time employee, you can't let a contractor come after you in certain situations. And so that made me on the lookout for that sort of thing. And I looked around to the contractors and most of them were, uh, they were definitely um, ethnically and gender wise more diverse than the full-time employees. And that got me thinking a little bit about, you know, why is it that these, these people are contractors? Why don't they have the benefits or why don't they have the wages that Google employees usually do? Um, but the contractor base wasn't as big as it was now. And so for me, it was very easy to just say, okay, that must be like a tiny thing. It's, I can ignore it. But I mean, living in San Francisco, so I worked in the San Francisco office and I lived about um, a couple blocks away from the office. And that was a part of San Francisco that just um, had quite a few homeless people living within it. And I remember, you know, passing by some, just walking around and thinking, well, this city is obviously very wealthy. This company is incredibly wealthy. Why does it seem like the number of homeless people is just increasing every week? What is going on in this city? Why does it seem like everyone's just kind of okay with it? And I didn't know how to reconcile that. I felt like there was part of me that said I was being naive, that there was something I just didn't understand. But there's another part of me that just thought there's something wrong, that this doesn't seem normal. It doesn't seem okay that you know my employer is producing all these billionaires who are you know, then spending their money on lavish houses or planes or whatever, while at the same time there are all these people who live right, right next to them, who are obviously struggling. And I thought the priorities just seemed wrong. But then at, you know, at the same time, it, I didn't really know who to talk to about that. I didn't really have a vocabulary. I was surrounded by other people working in tech who also expected to be able to make a lot of money in the field and who didn't necessarily have a strong sense of Social responsibility, and I certainly didn't. I didn't think that I had much responsibility to the people around me, and so I think it was it was a kind of ideological bubble where, even though we knew that there was there was something wrong with uh, the world we were living in, we also didn't really know how to look outside it. It was it was a it was a strange place, and yeah, and I think when I came when I um, went back to university after my internship was over, I. I was definitely left with this unsettled feeling about Google, but I didn't really know what to do about it. I guess I thought I believe this idea that I had worked really hard to get there, and it was something I had earned and therefore deserved. That um, you know, it, the fact that Google is going to pay me six figure a six figure salary start just starting um, as a new graduate, I thought, well, okay, that's that's what I've earned. That's my reward for working hard throughout my whole life. And so, there, even though there's a part of me that thought, well. You know, the average income in the US is way lower than that. There are there are people who are really struggling to get by. It doesn't seem fair that I'm getting paid that much money. At the same time, I, I really wanted to believe that it was fair and that so I didn't have to care because it, it seemed very uh seemed very frustrating to have to care about that sort of thing. So I just I kind of shut off that part of my brain. But at the same time, you know, um, there were other things about Google that I didn't like. They had this policy toward open source software that definitely just did not sit well with me because I was used to contributing to open source. I loved the idea of open source. And Google had this policy where if you wanted to work on open source software, because it might theoretically conflict with something Google was working on, you would have to get sign off from your manager. I just, I didn't like that. And that was part of what made me think I should look for something else. And so I ended up starting a startup with some, some friends from university.
2: And for the many listeners who who this might not make sense to, could you just explain what a uh, what your startup was trying to create? What what is a demographic inference engine?
3: Sure. Yeah. So it's it's really funny talking about it now because at the time when we talked about it, it didn't it seemed kind of innocuous, um, maybe a little boring. But now, if I describe it in you know more accurate terms, then it sounds really sinister. So in in a phrase, I would say. Yeah, so I would say it's kind of like like kind of like what Cambridge Analytica was trying to do, except we were much less we were we were less good at it, basically, and we were less ruthless about it. So what Cambridge Analytica did, just you know, for those who just need to touch up on that, they would take data from Facebook, I think primarily Facebook, and then use that to build a psychographic profile of people and then use that data to try to figure out how to manipulate them, most notably for the purposes of getting them to, to vote a certain way or to f- just follow a certain candidate for, for political purposes. And what we were trying to do, it was it was kind of similar, maybe one step below that where we just got the data and we we took data from people's Twitter and Instagram. And then we used machine learning to figure out what we could about them. So, for example, if someone was a fan of Justin Bieber, if they liked Urban Outfitters, if they lived in a certain place, if they follow certain candidates, uh, presidential candidates, for example, uh, what their gender is, what their age was. We tried to figure out everything we possibly could about them. And then where possible, we connected that data to an email address. And that means that if you're, you're a brand and you have you know a list of 100,000 emails and you don't know anything about these people because, let's say, you go to a traditional marketing data agency and they say, we don't have any data on these emails. Then you, you would go to us and you, and then we would tell you, well, here are the Twitter and Instagram handles of all these people. And here's what they care about. Here's how you can target them better. And so we would say, these people all really like yoga. These people like running. These people are fans of Taylor Swift. And we would just give that information to whoever we were working with and they would figure out what to do about it. And, you know, for, for me, it was one of those things where, the technical challenge was just so fascinating that I didn't really think about the ethical implications of it, even though I I kind of knew. Well, there's something that's a little bit creepy about this. Uh, we were doing things like figuring out who was friends with who, so we could figure we could find you on Twitter and Instagram. So even if you even if you never connected your accounts and you only told a couple of your friends that you were the same person on Twitter and Instagram, we could still figure that out from looking at your friends. And it was definitely, you know, a violation of people's privacy. But at the same time, because the the platforms gave us the ability to get this data, we thought, well, it can't be that wrong. You know, this has got to be fine. And we also knew of several other companies in our space that were doing essentially the same thing as us. And so I think all of that contributed to this idea that even though what we were doing felt a little bit creepy, it had, to, it had to have been okay. you know. The people we were working with, our, our customers, our um, investors, they knew what we were doing. They didn't really seem to think it was a problem. For them, it was just, okay, this is how the industry works. And it was only after the Cambridge Analytica revelations and maybe taking some time to reflect on it that I definitely started thinking, well, this is wrong. We should not have been doing this. I don't know how we managed to convince ourselves to do this. But yeah, so we were living again in this kind of bubble where because we were surrounded by people who were doing similar things, we didn't think what we were doing was that much of a problem. But now when I talk about it, it's just, it feels very obviously, you know, just unethical.
2: This, um, this actually, your journey through that startup really kind of touches on the second big idea that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, permissionless innovation. You know, there are obviously lots and lots of startups do, but this kind of idea um, that, that you can develop technology without having to ask really anyone, the rest of society, for permission in doing so, um, without really ever balancing what you're doing against kind of all those difficult and and um, kind of testy judgments and ethical considerations, which, um, which kind of see, seem to sit very far away from what actually seems to happen in Silicon Valley often. Um, do, do, do you think that, as, you know, across the valley, you know, there are thousands upon thousands of startups who are all doing this. Does, is, is that really part of the real problem here that, that, that we've got kind of technology development that's capable of causing an enormous amount of social disruption without any of those developers really ever asking the wider um, kind of like the wider parts of the world and society um, for permission or, 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 or approval in doing so?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that does get to the heart of what I see as the problem. Um, it's partly this this uh, this kind of tech hubris, this idea that you know, as people in the tech industry who ha- either have CS degrees or have some kind of technical way of thinking about things, that they just know better, and so they don't need to ask for permission because you know, the the users they're they're stupid. They they couldn't possibly be expected to understand what what they need. Um, I think that's pretty common in in this in the software world and at the same time there's this i think there's a faith that the systems work and that I think the assumption is that it's okay for people in the industry to not have to think about the mission to only think about doing whatever they want to you know being ruthless growing expanding creating something cool because the broader structures of society ensure that their innovation is channeled toward the public good i think that's what People who, even if they don't admit it specifically, that's probably what they tell themselves, because that everyone has to justify what they do to themselves. They have to believe that what they're doing is somehow better than the alternative. And I think that's that is probably an implicit belief that many people in the industry have. That you know, even if they they aren't specifically thinking about the greater good when they're working on their product, they, they probably assume that um, you know the. The market mechanism will ensure that they're working on something that is useful for society, and I, you know, I, I don't think that's true. I think if we're looking at the evidence, there are a lot of things that can get funded or can generate revenue without actually being the sort of thing that you know ordinary people would want if they could decide democratically. I think there is a lot of money in just uh, you know making people's lives a little bit more miserable, and. I, yeah, and I think so for me, that is kind of the central problem, but I, I do think there like like you're saying, there's this culture of asking for forgiveness, not permission in the tech industry. And while on the one hand, that can actually be quite powerful because it allows determined founders to you know challenge the norms, to come up with something innovative and creative and interesting, there's also a downside in that if those people are not equipped with the, the ethical tools, to figure out what kind of things they should be asking for permission for, then they're going to end up building things that are, you know, are unethical or that are harmful for many people. Um, and I think right now the industry doesn't—it does not have the proper balance of um, trying to break with established norms versus making sure that that's done for the right reasons. I think, you know, there there are so many people in the industry because. Because it's where the dynamism is, right? And because it's it's how you can make a lot of money these days. And they're not in it thinking, I, uh, I will make sure that everything I do is about making people's lives better. They're thinking, well, you know, I'm I'm going to get rich, and like I'm sure it'll be fine for people in the long run. But what matters is that I build something cool, and my name is in TechCrunch, and I become wealthy from this. And I think that is a problem because I don't see the broader structures of the industry or society at large as um, being robust enough to ensure that that kind of energy is channeled toward the greater good. And so there's this kind of disconnect, where um, the culture within the tech industry, it's very good at innovating, it's very good at producing new things. I don't think it's, that's being directed towards the right purpose.
2: Well, this has been so far a story of your kind of descent into this world. Time for a quick break. Now when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, Wendy's analysis of the problem and
4: possible solutions.
1: Hello, I'm Farah Jasat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you, our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared plus our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie to Mehdi Hassan, Bernardine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free. Please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much.
2: So Wendy, there's, there's a particularly arresting moment in the book where um, just before your kind of start-up, I think you, you call it collapsing in a kind of wave of mediocrity or something like that, you're kind of going around for valuations, you know, and there's kind of throwing around these figures. oh is it worth eight million, or four million, or five million? And it, it, it kind of felt like just the casualness that those numbers are thrown around by people that that, that are part of the startup world in Silicon Valley kind of opens up just the, the fact that there is access to ridiculous, eye-watering amounts of capital in this
4: world.
3: Yeah, totally. And I was trying to write that scene in a way that depicted just how absurd that was without being too heavy handed. And so there's a scene where, and you know, this is a a real scene where we were on this plane, and we were talking about these numbers. And I I do remember just thinking, like, these numbers are absurd. Like, we're talking about millions of dollars for something that we built, which isn't even that useful. It's definitely not socially useful. But we have a quite reasonable expectation that we'll be able to make, you know, at least a million, like hopefully more. And then we're just like, we're, you know, flying, we're like going through the clouds and I'm just thinking there's something about this that seems really absurd. Like we're, the, the stuff that we're doing, it's it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's like we're building sandcastles in the air and it just felt, it felt really unsettling. And I think that does capture just the, the fact that there's so much money in the tech industry that... For many in many ways it's not really connected to anything on the ground. Um, I remember before we started our startup, we'd heard about this company that got acquired by Palantir, I believe. And what they did, they they made this product that was something like Twitter polls. So like polls for Twitter. And it was very strange. I remember they got acquired for quite a large sum of money. And the founder was quite young and we thought, well, you know, if they can do it, we can do it. We didn't think stop and ask, you know. Why is it that they that a Twitter poll product can be sold at Palantir for for X millions? It didn't occur to us that that could be, in some way, indicative of a broader problem. That you know, for one, that this might might be being used for nefarious purposes, or that the amount of money in the industry was disconnected from merit or actual usefulness. Uh, instead, I think we just we took the valuations at Face Value. We saw that there were advertising technology companies that were valued at tens or hundreds of millions. And we thought we could, we could be up there. We could do that. And it was, it was very strange. We, it, again, it was this bubble where uh, we were in this industry where money was not really a means to, to, to procure your survival the way it is for most people. Instead for us, it was this like badge of honor. You know, the the point of raising 10 million is not to be able to survive for you know another few years, the point is to say we were we raised ten million dollars. You know we're we're amazing. We're so cool. Our product is so great. People love us, and and that that was very strange for me because I just I didn't really know how to make sense of it. I did have a sense that there was something sinister in that, but again, like I didn't have a framework, I didn't have a vocabulary, and that was something that um only really hit home for me when I when my startup sold. Um, and then I moved to London, and I started meeting all these people who had never had access to that kind of money, and would never expect to. You know, I met people who were delivering food for Deliveroo. Who it just the fact that you know someone someone like me could just try and raise raise like several hundred thousand dollars without even much of anything. That it just that wasn't it wasn't conceivable from their perspective. And and I started to realize that the the kind of money that I grown used to the, the kind of world that I was that I was familiar with that that was the exception not the rule that the vast majority of people on this planet do not have access to that kind of money and the fact that I did I mean for a while I took that as proof of of my own merit that I was somehow special and was uniquely placed to do something amazing with that money but then as I started to meet more and more people outside my bubble I realized that you know a lot of people could use more money and they also have ideas for how to do something with it and that maybe my own personal perspective is not necessarily somehow superior to theirs. It's just that there's the system that we're in prioritizes a certain way of, of seeing the world in a certain kind of, uh, certain kind of technical background. So yeah, I think that the money in the industry, it's, it is confusing. And I, and I worry that it has the effect of, um, making people callous to the reality around them. Like it definitely did for me. Uh, and I think for any any young person who's in the industry and sees the money around them, I think it's easy to take the money as proof of merit, as proof of things being okay. But at the same time, I mean, if you, if you look at what happened in Wall Street 2008, 2008, 2009, I think it's probably a similar feeling. And maybe Silicon Valley should pay more attention to what was going on then. Because at the time, the people in that industry probably took the money that was flowing around as proof that their industry was, you know, fine, that there was nothing wrong with all the money they're making. But then, of course, over the next couple of years, everything started to unravel and the industry became more reviled. So I think this is, you know, the the, the fact that there's so much money flowing around tech, while it can have this kind of validating effect, I think we should be really wary of that. And hopefully if, if anyone's listening to this and is, you know, using the money as kind of proof of their own superiority, whether implicitly or not, I think that's that's a thing to be wary of because the, the the norms, the institutions that determine how much money something is allocated, those are not unbiased. Those are not these neutral arbiters of merit. Those function according to specific rules for specific purposes. And I think it would be a mistake to assume that because someone's able to raise you know 100 million dollars for some call center startup that their idea is necessarily you know something that society should place their faith in something that is going to be good for the world well
2: i mean there's there's no escaping of course the, the particular moment we're living in now you know the world health organization has has issued warnings of a swirling infodemic you know as report after report begins to spill out of of, of, of misinformation and disinformation being shared on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. This, this feels like a, a moment of particular and specific vulnerability for the tech giants. What would the world look like now, do you think, if the platforms that we had and the technology that we used wasn't what we have that that if it had been built on a within a different system which which wasn't um kind of predicated on capitalism would we be in a better place would we be better protected would we be reacting in a smarter way
3: Mm, great question i i think yeah i mean i think if um if we expand our the scope of the question to beyond just the social media platforms i think if especially in the u.s you know we don't have universal health care we we have um a society that is geared around the idea of work, and so people who don't have jobs that are valued by society are just treated horribly. They're treated disposably. I think a lot of those problems could be ameliora- ameliorated if we had a more humane and more egalitarian society, where you know we don't have a few people who are working min- minimum wage jobs on the front line while some billionaires get credit for donating ventilators or whatever. But when it comes to the social media companies, I think if those had been built along the lines of like a more decentralized platform, as opposed to this very centralized attention-based idea where, you know, the goal of these platforms is to keep you addicted to them. They want you to spend as much time on them as possible. You know, Facebook likes this term time well spent, but what does that really mean? They, they just mean time there's no way to measure that. For them, It's they just define it according to what they think is good. These platforms want us to stay on them, even if that means we are receiving the wrong information, even if it means we're just angry and arguing all the time. I think there are other ways to design these platforms to combat misinformation. That's not my specialty, so it's not something I can say too much about. But I do think there are you know, decentralized ways. Part of the problem, I think, is that we the world has never before seen the degree of connection that we're able to experience with Facebook, with Twitter, with these apps. You know, having two, uh, having like more than a billion people on a platform where you have instantaneous communication that is something quite new. And I, you know, if we if we could go back in time, maybe the the way we should think about it is we should probably do it more more slowly, more thoughtfully. And instead of just connecting everyone and then just seeing what happens, it could have been done in a more managed, thoughtful, um, iterative way. So, yeah, I, I think what we're seeing with um, with coronavirus in terms of misinformation, but also just in terms of the, the way the virus is spreading and affecting us, I think a lot of this stems from just the, the broader socioeconomic context that we're in. And, you know, the, the capitalist system that we have now, it, was not built to handle a pandemic like this, and we can't really necessarily like blame the system for that because you know who before this would have thought that we would have a pandemic of this nature but at the same time it does offer a useful opportunity to reflect on what we could have instead and so we don't have to say, well you know it's capitalism is just um it's useless and has always been useless because it couldn't handle a pandemic like this I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think capitalism has brought us to this point and we can't change the past, but we, what we can do is look around and say, well, how have the conditions of the world changed? How can we think about better ways to design our social media platforms and our broader societal institutions to account for the fact that we have, one, a pandemic and also the spate of uh, misinformation regarding the pandemic in a way that is endangering people?
2: Is it, is it possible, do you think, for... The platforms and 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 technologies that we have as private companies to act in in kind of in ways which are responsible and ethical in your eyes um or, or you know or, or, or is it really kind of systemic change which is needed you know obviously as we're all sitting in our in our living rooms now we're beginning to imagine what a kind of post-pandemic world looks like you know is this the moment possibly where that kind of systemic change might actually come out
3: Mm, I I really hope so. So I'm in the US. And I mean, it, it sounds like it's been bad in the UK as well. But here just, it's been really, really horrific, especially when it comes to low wage workers. Unemployment numbers are through the roof, a lot of people aren't able to pay rent. I really do hope this is a moment of rupture for people where, you know, they realize that there are other ways to organize society than the one that we're in now. But in terms of um, can company can these companies do better as private companies? I think they definitely can. I think there's a lot of room for them. I don't think it'll necessarily come from actions at the top. I think you know the decisions by CEOs, executives, whatever they those can be better. But I also think that they have a lot of pressure from shareholders to do what's good for the bottom line, and a lot of the time, what's good for the bottom line will conflict with the good of their workers or their customers, and so. Where I place my hope is in the workers of these companies who so far just haven't really seized the power that they have as a collective. Um, The most exciting things I've seen coming out of the tech industry have been worker actions. For example, at Google, um, when you had all these workers protesting Project Maven, which was a contract with the U.S. Department of Defense, and they actually managed to push Google to not renew that contract. And I think that's just like a tiny glimpse of the power that workers could have if they collectively exerted uh, and pushed for what they believe to be tr- to be to be right. The Google walkout was another very inspiring example of workers especially female workers saying, you know, we don't want our company to be paying out a sexual harasser simply, you know, simply because this is how it has always been done. They they were basically trying to change the rules of the game and say we we want to shift the balance of power towards towards workers, especially, you know, women who are underrepresented in tech. I do think there's a lot of room for the industry, even if it remains in private hands, to do better. And I think that that comes from just changing the calculus of power relations. I think that comes from workers uh, pushing for what they believe in, pushing for, you know, one, higher wages for those who are not making that much money, better working conditions, more benefits, but also for some degree of ethical control over the products they're building. Because right now it's, you know, the products are decided From from the top, the CEO, the executives all get to decide what 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 things are being built, and they get to tweak those ideas based on what they think shareholders will like or won't like. But the frontline workers who are implementing this, they don't really have a lot of control over the actual ultimate aim of the products they're building. Some of them have control over you know technical decisions; they have some creative autonomy, but they don't get to say, "Well, I don't actually want to work with the U.S. military." That's not something they can make. They can decide on as individuals. They that's something they can only make happen if they come together as a block. So yeah, I do have a lot of hope in, you know, people, workers being politicized and deciding to do something different and and to take a stand for what they believe in. And I and I wonder if, given the changes that we're seeing because of the pandemic, if maybe that's something that is going to be more likely to happen once this is over because in the tech industry itself among software engineers we're seeing layoffs we're seeing hiring freezes we're getting to the point where this this sector and especially the the upper echelons of the sector they're being revealed to not be as immune as we thought maybe i definitely you know when i when i graduated i assumed that because wages in the industry were high they would be high forever and that i would always be entitled to you know making six figures and just seeing my net worth go up and up but now, I mean, there are, there are companies that have rescinded their summer internships, summer internship offers. There are companies that are no longer hiring. And what is that going to mean for the future? I'm not really sure, but I do hope that that makes software engineers, software engineers in particular and, you know, other people working in tech, realize that no matter what the rhetoric of their companies about a meritocracy or efficiency or innovation, that there is something sinister going on and that, you know... The wages that they're getting, the, the esteemed position that they're able to hold in these companies, it's not due to themselves and their own merit. It's due to their usefulness to the company. And if the larger labor market changes or if the larger economy changes and those companies don't see them as useful anymore, they will not hesitate to lay them off. And And I think the only way to really counter that is not individual action, it's collective action. I think this could be a quite revelatory moment for people in the industry who previously just believed that, you know, they they would be fine with the skill set they had. I hope it makes them realize that um, our fates are all entwined, that there's only so much we can do individually, that there are broader socioeconomic forces that ensure that, you know, some of us get paid a lot while others get paid very little, and that we can't change this just by, you know, going back to school or, just being better or trying to climb the ladder more, that the only way we change this is by shifting the balance of power in society away from corporations and the people who own these corporations toward just ordinary people. Because, you know, we all have good days. We all have bad days. Um, even the best software engineer in the world can get to the point where their skills are no longer deemed useful by the companies that they would be working for. And yeah, I, I think, I think the industry is in for a reckoning. I, I, I hope it doesn't come at too high a price. Uh, I am currently very worried for all the software engineers and would-be software engineers who are looking around at the industry and seeing that a very small number of companies are hiring. Um, I don't think that is good, but yeah.
2: Well, Wendy, here's here's my last unapologetically upbeat and optimistic question for you. The pandemic has gone, it's retreated, systems have dissolved, what does, in your eyes, the kind of best case system for tech look like? How can it be innovative and agile and active and proactive and 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 ethical and and equal without you know all of those kind of weights of money and 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 capitalism and 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 corporatism and um, tying it down? What what actually is the best case scenario here? Mm,
3: that's a lovely question. So the, the way I see it is. I'm thinking about it in terms of democracy and people having more democratic control over the systems that affect them, but also the systems they build. And, and so when I'm thinking about what the industry could look like, I think that could mean more worker co-ops, that could mean more nonprofits, it can mean more uh, ways of producing things that take into account all stakeho- all stakeholders and not just shareholders. And so, you know, we could, I think there should still be software engineers working on products, but I think those engineers could have more of a say over what they're working on as a collective and also that communities and users and um, other workers should have input. And, you know, I mean, it, it is a great question. I think it's one where I have a little trouble sketching out the specifics just because, you know, my my work is rooted in kind of critiquing the present. And while I do have an idea of what I would like to see, it's still very, it's very blurry. It's very vague just because I don't think there is um, a large-scale large, large scale model where this has worked that I can base my my visions on. But I think the, the innovative parts of the tech industry are, are the parts where workers are given the freedom to do what they want. And I think that's the kind of thing that I would like to preserve in whatever comes after the current model of Silicon Valley. Um, I think the companies that give their workers the freedom to innovate and experiment, those are the companies that tend to have you know, better products, at least in the sense that they they iterate faster, they come up with new things. Gmail, for example, was a product that came out of uh, just an employee at Google deciding he wanted to build um, an, an email platform. I, I think that's that's the kind of thing that we should be grateful to Silicon Valley for, which is the fact that it has pioneered this new model of giving serv- certain employees the ability to experiment and innovate on their own time. I think that's what we want to capture. Um, I would love to see an industry where income inequality is, you know, tiny if it exists at all where the people who are building these products aren't doing it because they're able to buy a private jet but they're doing it because they love it. They they love what they're building and they don't have to worry about money because they're living in a society where having a lot of money is not required to have a decent life. And I would like more community input on the things that they're being that they're working on so that, you know, when they're building products they're not saying like you know, what, what should I build that's going to make the most money? They're saying, what can I build that will actually serve the people who I want to serve? And I think that's like quite a shift from what we have now, in that the systems that we have now aren't really set up for that. And so I, you know, I'm not really sure what that could look like. I think there are a lot of possibilities, but overall, what excites me is the idea of more economic democracy, uh, more control from workers, from users, ordinary people over the systems that affect their lives and i think yeah i think there's just so many ways we could do that i would just love to see more exploration when it comes to you know what is the most effective way to do that what are the best structures for ensuring that happens i don't know what those are i think those could take so many forms maybe some private companies are you know are, are actually suitable for this maybe uh, we just need a lot more co-ops or nonprofits or stronger unions i don't i don't really know but I would love to see more exploration of that after this pandemic is over.
2: Indeed. Well, Winnie Lou author of Abolish Silicon Valley, How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism, thank you very much. there there is some absolutely fascinating ideas and a brilliant
0: book.
3: Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. What are you doing right
0: now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing...